Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. It was a real treat recently to chat to Donna Rose Addis, a professor in cognitive neuroscience at the University of Auckland. One of the areas I've been researching as a complete novice to neuroscience has been what happens in our brains when we imagine. I had read several papers she had written about the similarities between imagination and memory, our abilities to recall the past and to imagine the future. I wanted to check with her that I had correctly understood what I had been reading, namely that until recently neuroscientists thought that different regions of the brain served different functions. This bit does this, this bit does that, an approach known as localizationism. More recently, activities are understood in terms of networks, different parts of the brain that fire together when we do different things. The imagination is often attributed to something called the default mode network, but recently Donna and others have shown that other networks also have a role to play. So I started my absorbing conversation with Donna by checking whether I had understood this correctly and asking her to talk a bit about the hippocampus, the part of the brain often associated with memory and imagination, and its relationship with the brain's different networks. So the hippocampus, I think, you know, we really had focused on that mainly because of individuals with damage to the hippocampus showing such dense amnesia. Um, And I think that's why it became a focus, um, uh, you know, as kind of this idea that maybe that's the seat of memory. Um, As we've sort of, I guess, had uh, neuroimaging, though, as that's developed, we've really, um, I guess, transitioned into this idea of that the brain is working in these networks, um, but that you can have critical nodes in those networks as well. So there can be regions that are really important for uh, maybe bringing the whole, the rest of the network online. So it might be that if a particular node is damaged, that then um, if it makes either a critical contribution to the behavior, such as memory, or if it's a critical node in that network and kind of in up-regulating the rest of the network and um, or perhaps passing information on, um, then if there's damage to that region, it can, you know, then be very devastating for that particular behavior. So I think, you know, it's not that there aren't kind of localizations within networks, you know, we do talk about nodes within these networks, but um, I think the realisation is that regions never work alone and they also work within a within a neural context. So, you know, how a region might react um, is also dependent on the activation levels of other regions in that network. Um, and the default mode network is, is really interesting. Um, you know, that's been, as you mentioned, kind of, uh, is thought about as our default mode when we're not doing anything else or when our mind is spontaneously wandering. But when I started um, in research that, you know, in the late 90s, that, that same network was actually thought of as the autobiographical retrieval network. And uh, and then in about 2001, the idea of the default mode network came out and we were all like, well, that's just the memory network. What are they talking about? <laughs> um, and so actually what we're doing when we aren't doing anything is to be kind of, um, I guess, moving through that memory space. We're thinking about things we've done, 
using aspects of our memory to think about the future or to imagine events that haven't happened or to rework past events. And so we're kind of doing this in a sort of a, you know, maybe a, a, a low, you know, energy sort of fashion. So we're not really kind of intensely engaged in it, but our mind's just kind of wandering through these types of memories. Um, when we do our tasks and we have people in the scanner and we actually ask them to remember a specific event or to imagine a specific event in the future, uh, then we ramp that network up. So we see even more activity in the default mode network. Um, so we're really modulating that activity. And the hippocampus in particular then, I think, you know, it can be a bit, um, someone once described the hippocampus as promiscuous. So it can be um, involved in many different tasks, tasks you might not think of as uh, hippocampally dependent tasks, um, such as perception even. Um, but then also it can kind of, it seems to engage with different networks depending on what you're doing. So sometimes we do see it, um, you know, it's there with the default mode network often, but then it can also be engaged with the, you know, executive control networks as well. Um, is, so, yeah. Is, in, in an imaginative person, because I know Scott Barry Kaufman at the, Imagina the Institute of Imagination in the US, he, taught, he calls the default mode network the imagination network. But, mm. is, but is it, is it, would it be more correct to say that actually in a really imaginative person, all those different networks, it's, it's not just down to having a healthy default mode network. It's actually all those different networks are, are play a role in, in an imaginative person. I would say so. I think, though, it depends on what you're actually, um, you know, what the task is at hand or if there is a task. So if you're um, really having to kind of think very laterally or really sort of engage yourself in trying to work out a particular problem and you're using strategies to think through different potential solutions and evaluate them um, and kind of do what we would call conceptual expansion. So to, that's what I kind of think of as thinking laterally. You're sort of activating um, ideas that maybe wouldn't normally go together um, or are more distant from each other in a kind of conceptual space, um, then you're going to have, you know, the frontal parietal control network, executive networks coming online to help you do that. But if you're just mind-wandering, and we can certainly come up with ideas in a spontaneous fashion as well um, and be imaginative in a spontaneous fashion, then I think, you know, it's just the default network on its own. But what we've seen um, in our work is that uh, when you're actually – tasked with something quite difficult, then you start to see interactions between the control network, um, the frontal parietal network, and also the salience network. And that might be to do with something that, something like that, you know, these I, this task is, you know, quite novel and difficult. Um, it could also be to do with the fact that you're having to maybe switch between networks so because both of them are contributing to this task there might need to be some sort of switch as to you know how these networks are coming on and offline um we had a, a study come out last year in neuropsychologia um that was led by my postdoc reese roberts and he um 
did a study where we actually had people imagine future events and we gave them um, a mix of personal details to help them kind of start their uh, each trial. So we said, okay, think about your dad in your um, garage with your car. And so imagine something to do with that. So that's a fairly easy imagination task because all those details are congruent. What we did, though, on other trials was to mix up details that came from different spheres of a person's life. So perhaps family mixed with a work de- with work details and with, say, their sports team details or something like this. Then they're starting to have to think about, okay, why would I be imagining my dad in the gym, in my university gym with my you know laptop computer or something like mm-hmm. this? So something that's quite different actually the most interesting one these are all random combinations we had dad in an uh in a laser tag park with an inflatable boat (laughs) so that was you know so they've got to then imagine something around this and that's quite a that can be quite a tricky thing right they've got to come up with an idea they've got to sort of structure a framework for that event and then retrieve the appropriate details to sort of flesh that event out um, and when people were doing this much more demanding task, we saw overall, we saw lower activity in the default mode network. So it's kind of like you're less able to bring up a really, say, vivid and clear um, simulation of that event. But what we did see was that the default ne- network was strongly um, coupled with the frontal parietal control network. Um, and in particular, those regions, the um, anterior lateral prefrontal cortex that allows you to kind of do this conceptual expansion to sort of you know think a bit more laterally and try and figure out why these disparate details how can I put them together into a story that makes sense because it used used to be it used to be as I understand it that people imagined people thought that the executive network and the default mode network were like yin and yang you were either in one or you were in the other and as soon as you went into one the other one disappeared but now people are sort of seeing that they actually bleed into each other a bit more that's right and i think that was to do with the nature of the tasks people were doing so you know when the default mode network was named as such that was based on observations where you know if you were doing say a language task or a mathematics task um, and then you had rest periods in between the default mode network would become active during those rest periods. Um, and it wasn't active when you were doing these tasks. And so then, you know, that was sort of uh, the idea that then when you're not doing a task, you know, then the default mode network, uh, you know, kind of takes over and that these um, networks are then kind of anti-correlated with each other and they're sort of switching on and off. But then when we actually are getting people to do internally generated tasks that are actually utilizing the default mode network, then the default mode network certainly comes online. And then if the task is actually kind of has particular demands in it um, that require your brain to sort of, I guess, exhibit some control over what the default mode network is doing, perhaps, Mm. um, then I think you start to see these networks working together so I think they can work kind of in opposition to each other that you might just have one on and not the other and vice versa or you can actually see them coupling depending on you know is the task about something that's kind of internally generated 
um, related to my own memories um, or to basically the, you know, idea of creating something internally. And and the hippocampus has a vital role to play in each of those. Yeah, that's right. So we've, um, we found uh, when we did our early work looking at um, getting people to imagine the future and to remember the past, we saw significant overlap in in the hippocampus. So the hippocampus was active in both tasks. But then we also saw that the hippocampus was actually more active in um, the imagination task, which, you know, was quite a striking finding really because we'd all, to that point, we'd really thought of the hippocampus as a memory structure and now we were seeing it more active during imagination. So we're sort of um, quite perplexed by that. But if we think about the hippocampus as um, a region that allows us to integrate information, it, then it actually makes sense because when you're doing um, an imagination task, you're actually having to integrate many more types of, um, you know, you're having to integrate details that may not have ever been integrated together before. When you remember something, you are reintegrating details that already have some linkages. Um, and so then that's not as demanding for the hippocampus. Um, so, yeah, so that's that was mm. a really, you know, fascinating study, I think, and that mm. sort of triggered us into this um, direction of really looking into imagination. And also, presumably, when we think we're remembering, we're kind of also partly imagining we're filling in that our imagination's filling in quite a lot of the gaps. I know when I, oh, I, I, I just got together with a friend of mine I haven't seen for 30 years and we were remembering events almost completely differently than we were both yeah. at, you know. That's always, yeah, that's always very enlightening, <laughs> isn't it? Um, to see how, just how um, malleable our memories are. Mm. And uh, actually I've just written um, a new paper on this idea that uh, will be coming out in the, the Journal of the Royal Society of New Zealand. And uh, this was the idea that I have in this um, paper is really that imagination and memory are, I'm basically arguing that they're the same thing. Mm. And in both cases, you're constructing a simulation of experience. Um, and in both cases, you're having to you know, bring together different kinds of perceptual elements of, you know, previous experiences. You're bringing together schemas, um, you know, uh, schematic information such as an event script. So, you know, what we know about the world and how events unfold um, and semantic information. And so we're actually having to integrate those things. And, mm. you know, depending on whether it's a memory or an imagination, you then might get different weightings of content. So if it's a memory, you might have more perceptual content. If it's an imagination and you're really having to generate a framework for that event, you might have more schematic information. But in both cases, there is simply a construction of reality, mm. but a construction nonetheless. And um, so I've, I've been doing a lot of reading around what are the things which um deplete or diminish the ability of the hippocampus to be as active mm. as, it, as it could be so there's i interviewed jamie hansen in the university of pittsburgh 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 
who's done lots mm. of work around the impacts of poverty and childhood trauma oh, yeah. uh, on, mm. on that. I've interviewed people who work in the PTSD field who talk about how the hippocampus kind of fuses uh, in trauma, how it, how it visibly shrinks and the research around people growing up in states of fear or high anxiety, hypervigilance mm. leads to a contracted hippocampus. There's also some studies I was reading recently about noise and growing up around noise leads to a uh, a, a, a small, a smaller a hippocampus. I wonder. Oh, I, I, wonder mm. I wonder if you had a sense about, you know, what do we know about what are the ideal conditions for the hippocampus, and when we see the hippocampus being impacted in that way, presumably mm. that then has a knock-on impact to the networks that we've been discussing. Oh yeah, yeah. No, very interesting question, and I've looked at this a little bit in terms of looking at um, autobiographical memory and future thinking in depression, and also seeing there that the function of the hippocampus changes, um, as do other aspects of these networks, and uh, and also you know your ability to actually think about the past and the future in detail um, that also is reduced and. As you mentioned, um, you know, what's common to all of the things that you mentioned, trauma, um, stress, uh, trauma, uh, even noise, growing up in poverty, all of these things, I think stress is the common element to that. And um, your previous uh, conversations that you've had, um, your guests might have told you about um, the stress hormone cortisol and how mm. that has a very detrimental impact on the hippocampus causes this atrophy. And I think one of the critical things there that, you know, we've come to realize we really thought it was a one-way thing, that a one-way street where you had increases in cortisol and that um, impacted your hippocampus. And so then that was it. You, you know, um, uh, had, had these cognitive impacts from that. What we're now realizing is that actually the hippocampus is also involved in stress regulation um, in terms of its connectivity with um, the amygdala and with other aspects of that kind of stress network. Um, and so then if you have atrophy in your hippocampus, you then experience events as more stressful mm. in the future, and it just becomes this vicious cycle because then you have more cortisol. And so you become in this, I guess, in an elevated uh, state of, like you said, hyper, you become hypervigilant. You're always kind of uh, very reactive to stress. And in my studies, I'd found that, you know, um, I did a, a, a used an instrument with people called um, the Perry Life Event Scale. And in the scale, they it's basically a whole list of, the most stressful types of events you can imagine. Um, and you had to indicate how many of those events had happened to you and how stressful they were. There was no difference between our depressed and non-depressed participants in terms of the number of events that they experienced. But depressed people, or this was even people with a history of depression, not currently depressed, they rate their amount of stress, their reaction to these events as much more stressful. Um, and I think that's really interesting because then that's kind of maintaining this hippocampal atrophy 
Um, also, as you know, one has more episodes of depression, for instance, the hippocampal atrophy progresses. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. Mm. Um, the other thing, the other part of your question was, you know, about what kinds of things are, you know, I guess in, good for the hippocampus or enhancing for the hippocampus um, and its ability to imagine. Um, there, I think it's things, uh, a number of effects have been shown with exercise um, as really being um, able to increase neurogenesis in the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is one of the few regions that can actually um, regenerate and um, birth new neurons and uh, this process that we call neurogenesis. And exercise really increases this. Um, we don't quite know why exercise, you know, has this effect. It could be due to increased blood or oxygen or, you know, we haven't quite got that link yet. But that just shows you that, you know, basically there's there are simple things we can do like exercise that are helpful. Um, antidepressants actually also work to increase the volume of the hippocampus um, in individuals with depression. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think being socially engaged and just being engaged in life, I always, you know, in my research, it's very clear when you, you know, I do a lot of work with older adults, those older adults that are engaged in life, they're thinking through things, they're engaged in politics, whatever, you know, um, then you're making associations, you're making links, you're, um, you know, processing information, and I think those things are all really good mm. for keeping your hippocampus um, going. You're basically mm. stimulating it. And interestingly, there was a study a few years ago from Joel Voss in Chicago, and uh, he did a study where he actually used um, transcranial, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation to stimulate the hippocampus. But the trick there is that the hippocampus is quite deep, and so you can't just stick something on the outside of the brain. Mm. And that, this is basically a magnet that you put on the outside of the brain, of the skull. Um, but you can't actually stimulate the hippocampus directly. But what he did was he actually um, measured each person's, he kind of mapped each person's default mode network, and then he took a region that was on the lateral surface of the brain, and he stimulated that. And he actually showed that it could upregulate the activation of the hippocampus right. and increase memory. Mm. So I think right. that's really interesting. Mm. So I um, am, you know, actually just got funding to uh, start a new study to actually look at doing that for imagination mm. um, and see if we can actually enhance people's ability to imagine. Mm. So would it be would it be reasonable leap do you think to to suggest that in a culture which uh, which is increasingly traumatized or increasingly stressed the more stress mm -hmm. that you put on a population and yep. the more fearful a population is then the less imaginative it's going to be and the less able it's going to be to uh, to imagine the future. Absolutely, I think that's um. Uh, yeah, I really do feel like there has been this kind of societal increase in stress 
we're constantly bombarded with information. So we could consider that, in a way, noise, if you like, mm. like that study that you show, uh, that you mentioned earlier. So if you're constantly bombarded with information, you're having to filter, deal with this information, we're constantly then, those of us who are um, in, you know, information-type jobs, constantly having to deal with email and other types of things, I think, you know, this um, this creates a, a level of stress that, mm. you know, life is speeded up so much. Really yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about that because I, I did uh, mm. I did an interview with um, Dr. Larry Rosen, uh, who wrote a book called The Distracted Mind, uh, oh, yeah. which was based on a lot of the really, really terrifying uh, research about the impact of, uh, of oh, smartphone yeah. technology, social media yeah. on our attention, on our on our ability yeah. to focus. And yeah, and they call it the distracted mind. He says we are in a we're in the middle of a of a cognition crisis, is the way that he talks right. about it. And I wonder if and, you if you had a thought about how that relates to yeah. imagination. What happens to our imagination when our attention span is shot to pieces, and to those networks yeah, but, that we talked about? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think one of the things there is that you know if you are constantly being you know distracted or being you know, if you think about what's happening when you're distracted, it's actually that your your attention is being grabbed by something. It's not that you're kind of, you know, distracted as in kind of not really doing anything or your mind's wandering, but I think mm. what's happening to us now is that our attention's being grabbed by things all the time. Um, you have very little time to actually let your mind wander. You know, I feel like that's one of the rare... Um, you know, one of the rare kind of states now um, is that, you know, we're, we're constantly engaged. We're constantly, you know, looking at things, um, having to then process that information, deal with it in some way or filter it out or whatever. Um, and I think then that, you yeah, know, that definitely has an impact there. Yeah. Mm. And uh, you, you said about, uh, I suppose one of the things with, is that when we have very little time to let our mind wander, like you said, mm. that's really basically that that, our, that we use our default mode network very little, you know, that, that, right. that because because at those times when we could be just our default mode network could be taken over, we're thinking, hmm, I'm slightly bored. Where's my phone? Uh, I know. <laughs> and so and so and so, what happens when when our default mode network gets used less and less and less? What what are the impacts of that? Yeah. Well, that's, that is, I think, um, a very intriguing question that has not, to my knowledge, been looked at. Um, but you could imagine that you're going to see, you know, less strengthening between the nodes of those networks, potentially. Um, or maybe that we become less skilled at switching between networks, for instance. Um, because I think all of these things, you know, I mean, we all experience that um, that fog when you go back to work at the end of the summer. So down in New Zealand right now, it's summer and we're just all going back to work. Um, and it's almost like your mind is a muscle and you've sort of got to get, you know, back into the swing of it again. Mm-hmm. If you're never in the swing of it because you're too busy, you know, looking at social media or on your phone or whatever, you could imagine then that it becomes very difficult to really then 
engage these networks effectively. Um, the more we do it, the more it, you know that we can probably do it in a very efficient and effective manner. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, one of the things that I don't have any data for, but feels to me like something that I've observed is that when I was mm. growing up in the 70s and 80s, we talked about the future all the time. All the comics you got as children were all about yeah. the future is going to be like this. The future is going to be like that. And nobody really talks about the future very much anymore. It's become something that's really complicated and scary. And we see the rise of all these movements who say, hey, let's make it like it used to be. Let's go backwards. Yeah. This sort of retrotopia right. kind of a thing. You know, is do you think that reflects that somehow we're becoming less able to to look to the future? And why might that be? Yeah, so um, one of the things we see in people with anxiety is actually um, and, and depression, the sort of uh, inability to think about the past and the future in specific detail. And what I actually found in my study was that um, in depression, thinking about the future was much more difficult, and so they were much more impaired um, at being able to imagine future events. And that's harks back to what I was saying before about when you're trying to imagine something that you've not experienced before, you're really having to bring ideas together um, to really kind of think in an expansive way or laterally about how you could bring different ideas and link them in a way that makes sense. In individuals that um, uh, had depression and were then less able to imagine the future, um, in specific detail, we actually uh, found that they were having to engage their control networks more, which was also evidence then that they're really struggling with that task. And one of the theories about um, this inability to think about the past and the future in detail is um, avoidance, that we sort of learn that thinking about these things can be destabilizing it can be upsetting and so then we start to avoid doing it um, so that's certainly one aspect of that the other thing is that people with anxiety tend to think about the future in negative in a negative way so there's kind of a, um, a difference between individuals with anxiety and individuals with depression in the sense that in depression you're less able to think about positive future events but in anxiety you're more able to think about negative future events mm, interesting so it's kind of like being heightened to the negative then you might start avoiding that's a potential outcome because um, because one of the things that that is that, that is a question that i wonder about is you know there's that idea that the imagination is something which isn't uh isn't um, it's kind of value neutral, you know. You know so so mm. some people would argue that um, if you're Florence Nightingale reimagining the healthcare system, or you're Donald Trump, uh, you're both imaginative people. You're just imagining in different ways. I want. I wonder, mm. and I wonder just you know for, for, from what you've said there whether mm. it's actually that that the the natural state of the of the of the imagination uh in your which we see in young children is a positive solutions focused sort of creative positive thing mm. and that actually what happens in someone like donald trump when you read about his childhood 
which was just appallingly mm. stressful and traumatic and mm. neglected and mm. awful. And the same with Hitler and the same with, you know, that, that actually the people who come up with the really negative imaginative visions of the future, that actually their imagination is being filtered through lenses of trauma and stress and distrust. Whereas actually, if we are able to have, for example, an education system that really values imagination and creativity and where young people aren't squeezed by testing and all this kind of stuff and are actually mm -hmm. more able to flourish, that actually it's more likely that we're going to get a more positive, the imagination applied to more positive visions of the future rather than more kind of fear-based ones or is that or is yeah. that just me because i'm coming from a from a more sort of progressive <laughs> political position saying anyone who i don't agree with must have a damaged imagination <laughs> um well i think what, what you're saying there it certainly fits with that data that people that have experienced anxiety and trauma do think about the future in more negative terms and you can kind of understand why that would be and that if you're hyper vigilant you are on the lookout for the negative so, you know, you really are kind of experiencing the world, like you said, through a negative lens. Um, and so that I would I would argue that then that would ex extend to your imagination as well, mm. to your memory and your imagination. We know that we, imag uh, that we remember things that are congruent with our mood as well. Um, and so we how, imagine things. How do you mean? Can you, how do you mean? So that if you are in a negative state, if you feel, you know, and if you're in low mood um, or, you know, feeling uh, depressed, you're going to imagine things that are negative or mm, remember things okay. that are negative. So we tend to, our mood sort of um, directs our search then for memory or mm. for imagination. Um, and I think you really, I think you really hit the nail on the head there when you talk about uh children and how they're able to just kind of think in a very or imagine in a very free way and I think you know a lot of that is that kind of exploration of ideas and just allowing um, different ideas to come together and then 